Thank you for downloading this sermon from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website at www.trinityspartanburg.com. Let's stand for the reading of God's Word. Turn to Malachi chapter 2, and we'll pick up at verse 10 and go through verse 12. Grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Do we not all have one Father? Has not one God created us? Why do we deal treacherously each against his brother so as to profane the covenant of our fathers? Judah has dealt treacherously, and an abomination has has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves... And has married the daughter of a foreign god. As for the man who does this, may the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob everyone who who awakes and answers or who presents an offering to the Lord of hosts. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we pray that as we come to your word, that you would help us to understand it, and in understanding it, that we would believe it, and believing it, we would obey it. To your glory, Father, give us the spirit that we may uh, do this work you've called us to. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Be seated. So there are some passages that are harder than others and some passages that require a lot of background and, and uh, uh, you know, defining of words and trying to figure out where the prophet is speaking. And I found this to be one of those passages. So, um, so you know, stick with me, um, pay attention, but we have to go through a number of other verses to bring this together. In Deuteronomy, verse, uh, chapter 4, verses 7 to 8, we learn this about the Jewish nation and her relationship to God. This is Moses speaking to the nation. He says, For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord, our God, whenever we call on him? Or what great nation is there that has statutes and judgments as righteous as this whole law which I am setting before you today? So that special relationship between God and this nation began with their one father, Abraham. Abraham being the father of this nation. And uh, that one covenant of grace blessed upon Abraham had governed the relationship between God and Israel over the ages. And God, who does not lie, was always and always will be faithful to that covenant. To Abram, God spoke the stipulations of that covenant. To Abram, before he changed his name, right? To Abram, we read this in Genesis 17. Now, when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. I will establish my covenant between me and you, and I will multiply you exceedingly. Abram fell on his face, and God talked with him, saying, As for me, behold, my covenant is with you, and you will be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, 
But your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make nations of you, and kings will come forth from you. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your descendants after you. I will give to you and to your descendants after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and the best part, I will be their God. God further said to Abraham, Now as for you, you shall keep my covenant. You and your descendants after you throughout their generations, this is my covenant which you shall keep. Between me and you and your descendants after you, every male among you shall be circumcised. They were to keep covenant by circumcising their sons. Right. Notice that Abraham is called to walk before the Lord and be blameless. He's called to holiness in this covenant exchange. And that he was to keep the covenant by obeying God's commands for his sons to be circumcised. And God promised to be a God to him and to his seed. And that promise from God had governed through the ages that relationship between him and Israel. Yahweh and Israel. And Abraham's seed. In fact, to put it more properly, God had set his hesed, his loving, his covenant love, his loving kindness upon this people. Upon this people, there is no way to properly quantify the blessing of that election of God. That he put his love upon them. The Apostle Paul attempts it in Romans 3 to quantify this when he he writes... In Romans 3.1, then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the benefit of circumcision? Certainly great in every respect. First of all, that they were entrusted with the oracles of God. Right? So, so th- this blessing, this, this covenant relationship, he says, is great. And even circumcision, they were entrusted with God's word. And then again in Romans 9, he writes, I'm telling the truth in Christ. I am not lying, my conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, the Jews, my kinsmen according to the flesh, who are Israelites, and then listen to this list, to whom belongs the adoption of sons and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the temple service and the promises Whose are the fathers, and from whom is the Christ according to the flesh, who is over all God blessed forever. Amen. Right, so Paul, a Jew himself, is looking back and he's saying, Look at all the privileges that the Jews have had through God's covenant love toward them, that the covenant love God set upon Abraham and through him to Israel is astonishing. Particularly when we remember that all men are sinners. But the people of God, Israel, the descendants of Abraham now according to the flesh, were constantly falling into whoredom and adultery with their spouse, Yahweh. So we see the faithfulness of God and his covenant promises that he does not lie and he keeps, and yet the one that he's yoked himself is committing adultery time and time again with different gods, false gods. 
Israel went after other gods, though God had protected them, though God had saved them, though God had rescued them out of slavery and brought them into this land flowing with milk and honey. They went after other gods, even gods of wood, clay, and metal, gods that had no eyes and couldn't see, you know, it had no ears and had no mouths. They had, in other words, broken covenant with God. They had broken covenant with God and chosen to reject blamelessness. They would not walk before God in blamelessness. And now this apostasy by this point in Israel's history had, had fully come to define her. The people had stopped their ears to God's warning, announced through the prophets, announced through Malachi, announced through Jeremiah and Ezekiel and, and Zechariah and others. And now Malachi is pointing to Abraham, that one father of all the Jews according to the flesh, and that one God who created them all. God the creator, Abraham their creator according to the flesh. And he asks, do we not all have one father? Has not one God created us? With all that in common, with that heritage, not just Descent from God through creation, but descent from Abraham through the flesh. All that heritage, all of God's favor. Why this rejection? And why, in particular, do those who have Abraham as a father and God as their creator treat, treat one another with contempt? Right? It's brother against brother that's going on here. That the, the fighting is brother against brother. He asks, why do we deal treacherously each against his brother so as to profane the covenant of our fathers? They had cast away the invaluable favor of God. They had cast away the favor of God, taken up idols, and now started to devour one another. In other words, one of the very evident signs, one of the very evident signs that Israel had rejected God's covenant love was the fact that they dealt treacherously against their fellow countrymen, right? They had not just rejected love of God, but they were not interested in showing love now toward their neighbor, even their closest neighbor. So they've rejected God, they've rejected their love for neighbor, they've rejected the first table of the law, they've rejected the second table of the law. They just are not interested in the things of God, and rejecting the love of God, their hearts were beginning to shrivel. Their hearts were getting small. And that heart condition led them to be selfish. It led them to be uncaring toward their neighbors. Now, like Paul says in Romans, refusing to acknowledge God leads to sin against our fellow man. Refusing to acknowledge God, refusing to live in his covenant love, leads us to sin against our fellow man. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice, their gossip, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful, and although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. So they, they, they refuse to acknowledge God, and out of that comes all kinds of sin against your fellow man. 
And then verse 11. This particularly obvious sign of their breaking covenant with God. Judah has dealt treacherously and an abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. Now what does that mean? That Judah has profaned the sanctuary and married the daughter of a foreign god. Well, that is to say, the people, even Judah and Jerusalem, which had particularly known God's favor and presence, defiled the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves by marrying, notice what it says, the daughter of a foreign god. They've defiled the sanctuary, they've defiled the land by marrying foreign gods. The nation which had been separated from the others, right, separated from other nations by this special covenant love of God, had turned from that love to join herself to the daughter of a foreign God. Calvin summarizes their sin this way. He says, the Jews were ungrateful to God because they mingled with heathen nations and knowingly and willfully cast aside that glory by which God had adorned them by choosing them. The sign of their apostasy is that they threw away God's law and instead went after the women, the daughters of foreign gods. And yet, to be more specific, I believe the prophet is specifically talking about how the men of that nation, Judah, against God's commands, had taken wives from foreign nations. They had taken wives from foreign nations, thus corrupting their worship and, and demolishing their exclusive love for Yahweh. They're, these were interfaith marriages. That's what these were. These were interfaith marriages. These were unequally yoked marriages. This is a marriage between a believer and an unbeliever, right? As, and we learn this from Solomon in Deuteronomy 7. We read this. When the Lord your God brings you into the land where you are entering to possess it and clears away many nations before you, the Hittites and the Girgashites and the Amorites and the Canaanites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites, seven nations greater and stronger than you, and when the Lord your God delivers them before you and you defeat them, then you shall utterly destroy them. You shall make no covenant with them and show no favor to them. Furthermore, You shall not intermarry with them. You shall not give your daughters to their sons, nor shall you take their daughters for your sons. Listen to this, and this is the point. For they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. And then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you, and he will quickly destroy you. But thus you shall do to them. You shall tear down their altars and smash their sacred pillars and hew down their asherim. And burn their graven images with fire. For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his own possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Now remember what we learned from King Solomon as well. Solomon loved, this is in 1 Kings 11. Now King Solomon loved many foreign women along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the sons of Israel, You shall not associate with them, nor shall they associate with you. 
for they will surely turn your heart away after their gods. Solomon held fast to these in love. He had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines, and his wives turned his heart away. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned his heart away after other gods, and his heart was not wholly devoted to the Lord his God as the heart of David his father had been. For Solomon went after Ashtoreth. Now think of this. Solomon. Solomon, the one who who was granted wisdom from God, supernaturally. Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the detestable idol of the Ammonites. Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did not follow the Lord fully as David his father had done. Then Solomon built a high place for Chamosh, the detestable idol of Moab, on the mountain which is east of Jerusalem, and for Molech, the detestable idol of the sons of Ammon. Thus also he did for all his foreign wives who burned incense and sacrificed to their gods. And remember what that Malachi, now back to Malachi, remember that Malachi is prophesying during the time of Nehemiah. And Nehemiah mentions some interfaith marrying, even bringing up Solomon's bad example. Right? In Nehemiah 13, we read this. In those days I saw that the Jews had married women from Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. As for their children, think of this, as for their children, half spoken the language of Ashdod, and none of them was able to speak the language of Judah, but the language of his own people. So I contended with them. This is Nehemiah speaking. So I contended with them and cursed them and struck some of them and pulled out their hair and made them swear by God, you shall not give your daughters to their sons, nor take of their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. Did not, kings, did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin regarding these things? Yet, many, yet among the many nations, there was no king like him, and he was loved by his God, and God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless... The foreign women caused even him to sin. Do we then hear about you that you have committed all this great evil by acting unfaithfully against our God by marrying foreign women? Even one of the sons of Jehoiada, the son of Eliashib, the high priest, was a son-in-law of Sanballat the Horonite, an enemy. So I drove him away from me. Remember them, O God, because they have defiled the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. Thus, I purified them from everything foreign, is what it says in Nehemiah. So, what do we do with this? The issue here is not merely one of race. This is not an issue of race really at all, but it's one of fidelity to God. It's an issue of fidelity to God in worship and in covenant. The command not to marry foreign women was because those foreign women served false gods. Right? And those husbands would be unable to lead their wives to give up those gods and eventually themselves begin to turn away from Yahweh to those gods. Right? Here's something else. It's interesting to me that this marriage to foreign wives repeatedly comes up in these books which outline the last part of Israel's history. 
and the last part of Israel's history before the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Why is that? I believe it's there because it's indicative of just how far the people had gone in rejecting God. They were now doing nothing to protect themselves from the influence of foreign idols and false gods. They were doing nothing. They were, in fact, not just doing nothing, but they were welcoming through marriage all these foreign, sinful, wicked practices and worship into their very families, into their worship, right into all of their practices. This is a sign of how far Israel has fallen. Calvin puts it starkly in his commentary. It's as though, it is as though the prophet says, From where have these wives come to you? From idols. You ought then to have hated them as monsters. Had you any religion in your heart, what but detestable to you must have been everything which may have come from idols. But your hearts have become attached to the daughters of false gods. That's what Calvin says. These, these women should be like monsters to you because they worship false gods. And yet here you are embracing them and welcoming, welcoming them into your home. In fact, it's very interesting that in Genesis 6, we have an indication of the fall of man in that the sons of God, the godly seed, determined to marry the daughters of men, the sinful seed, And through the history of Israel, there's been a temptation for the men of Israel to prove their disloyalty to God by yoking themselves to women who worshipped idols. Right from Genesis 6 all the way now through the end of the history of, of Israel. And is it any surprise that at the end of scriptures, the consummation of all things in Christ is a marriage between His seed and himself, the godly seed and the godly one. That is a marriage that will never be broken and never be corrupted by idolatry. And so here we see in Malachi, we see the whole whole disgust with which we see Ezra putting away foreign wives and Nehemiah pulling out his hair and Malachi calling it out as a sin is because it was demonstrating the rampancy of the idolatry of Israel. They cared not. Finally, Malachi announces that those who engage in this practice of idolatry will most definitely be punished. As for the man who does this, may the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob everyone who awakes and answers or who presents an offering to the Lord of hosts. As for what this means, that last phrase, everyone who awakens and answers and who presents an offering to the Lord... It's somewhat difficult. There are two types that God is promising to cut off. The one who awakes and answers and the one who presents an offering. It seems that this is speaking of both servants and masters. It's making a point that the low and the high will be cut off for this. Um, Servants awake and answer the commands of the master and the master is the one who presents the offering. This could be in relation to the priests and Levites. Or it could have a broader explanation. In in other words, it's a way of saying nobody is going to escape this sentence no matter how small or how great, whether you're slave or master, this will be punished. So all of that by way of explanation. The people of God had rejected God's covenant love and there was no more obvious sign of that than that their hearts went after the foreign gods of their foreign wives. So how to apply this? 
how to apply this message. It's not that hard, is it? Two passages in the New Testament come to mind. First, there's this. In 2 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul exhorts the cosmopolitan Corinthians, Do not be bound together with unbelievers. For what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Or what harmony has Christ with Belial? Or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? Right? Common sense. Common sense that's hard to get through your head when you're in college and your prospects don't seem so good. Right? The temptations to marry an unbeliever just for companionship. There, you know, so this, this passage certainly applies to marriage. And any of those who, of you who are not married, you should seek only to be yoked to someone who believes what you believe. And that better be the gospel. Right? If you do not, do not expect to change your spouse. Expect that your spouse will change you. He or she will change you if you do not make these expectations very clear at the outset. If you, if you compromised in your religion while dating, you will be forced to go after foreign gods when you marry. But it also applies beyond marriage, right? That's the obvious application. There are many relationships where it's very difficult to, to be unequally yoked with those who worship other gods. Entering into a close partnership in business could be strained if there is not an understanding that your business serves the Lord Jesus Christ first and other things second, like money, right? Would you want to partner with someone who could care less about unequal weights and measurements and is willing to cheat, right? Are you naive enough to think that that man's practice has nothing to do with his worldview and the false gods that he worships? What about denominations? What about denominations? When a denomination has proven herself willing to cozy up with the idols of the culture within which she is set, should we see our association with that denomination as grieving to the Lord and potentially defiling to us? It is more than just staying and fighting, but being aware of the leaven that leavens this lump of clay. And protecting ourselves from that. Are we being tainted by the apostasy we, re- we observe around us? Or is it just a lack of humility that causes me to say that? No, not unless we are willing to take drastic action to remain faithful to the Lord. The, the other passage that comes to mind is this one. No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. In a sense, the Israelites of Malachi's time wanted to have two masters, right? And thought that they could handle it, which everybody thinks they can handle two masters, right? But God told them that they could not have two masters. Having two masters is impossible. We always and only serve the one master who who is cushier, who serves our flesh just a little better, either God or some other idol. There will always be temptations for you to share your faith in Christ with some foreign God. You will be asked for the sake of respectability to fit in just a little bit of Buddhism in your Christianity or a little bit of materialism in your Christianity, a little bit of that humanism we hear about in with your Christianity, and you'll think you can handle it. You'll think you can keep the proper balance. 
right? He knows, <laughs> but God knows better. God says differently, right? He knows that we're dust and that our hearts are idle, idle factories. And so he tells us that if we try to fit two things together, we will be devoted to the idol and despise him. So at the end of the day, we have to be on guard. The love of the world will try to crowd out the love we have for the Father in heaven. We must remember the example of the Lord Jesus Christ who was offered the kingdom of the world, the kingdoms of the world by the devil, if only Jesus would just that one little time bow down and worship the devil. But our example and Savior responded with these words, Go, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Dear brothers and sisters, there will be all kinds of pragmatic reasons that you should marry the daughter of a foreign god. You will argue with yourself and say that it would be better to be married to a pagan than to be lonely and unhappy. God wouldn't want that. You will say that it would be better to make that cake and earn a living than lose my living by faithfulness. Right? But God, you know, God wouldn't want that. You will say that it would be better to make that, or to, that God, um, it'd be better to be silent on campus about certain things in order to Retain your ability to be on campus and faithfully proclaim his word, come what may. Uh, but God wouldn't want that. And see, we, we always, we're, always, we're always trying to soften things and soften our witness so that we remain respectable. And I say to you, God wants faithfulness. God wants faithfulness. He's a jealous God who does not take kindly to competitors, right? Our Savior said, and this is where I end, he who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who has found his life will lose it. Stop and think about that verse this week and just how radical it is. How if you believed even 1% of that verse, it would turn your life on its head. He who has found his life will lose it, and he who has lost his life for my sake will find it. 